Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah in the Old Testament. And we'll begin in chapter 5 and make our way soon to chapter 8 and 9. You'll recall that Isaiah is the prophet of God serving the people of God in the southern kingdom, Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom. Israel is ruled by a series of bad kings that do not follow God. Judah in the south is uh, ruled by a spotty lineage, uh, pristine compared to Israel to the north, but nonetheless there's a series of kings that are good, and in the midst of them there is one particular king, and he is the reference here in these early chapters of Isaiah, and his name is Ahaz. You'll remember the historical situation is such that Assyria is a great world power off to the northeast, strong, evil, pagan, godless Assyria, ruled much of the known world at that time. And then there are smaller governments to Assyria's west. First of all, the nation of Assyria, rather the nation of Syria called Aram in many uh, Bible translations. You read about Aram, the king of Aram, that's Syria. The capital is Damascus. And then there's, there's Israel. The capital at this time is Samaria. And uh, Israel has this series of unbelieving kings, even though they are the people of God, they have been led by unbelieving men, and God is bringing judgment. So Syria and Israel have made an alliance against the threatening war brought on by Assyria, the great giant country to the east. And they want Judah to align with them. Judah decides we're not having anything to do with you guys. And so Judah begins to make an alliance with Assyria. Now that is tantamount to making an alliance with the devil. Judah, the people of God, instead of looking to God, hoping in God, they make an alliance with the world. Now I want you to feel the gravity of that for our own hearts. As we read Isaiah, we need to contemplate the implications of that. We are not living 800 years before Christ. We're not living in that day. So these historical circumstances don't have anything to do with my life. I, here I am living virtually 3,000 years later. What has this got to do with me? Well, just this, that the same temptations of the people of God in the 8th century B.C. are the same temptations that you're dealing with right now. Do I trust God or do I make an alliance with the world? Do I forsake what I know God has told me and believe something else? That's the question we must contend with as we apply these chapters to our own lives. So in this case, Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern king, the, the good nation, if you will, has a prophet, Isaiah. And that prophet is speaking the words of life to Ahaz, and he is having none of it. He doesn't listen. 
And so as a result, God promises judgment. And we have seen that already as we have worked our way through these opening chapters in Isaiah. And by the end of chapter 5, we're going to read something in chapter 5 momentarily, but by the end of chapter 5, darkness and despair rule in the hearts and circumstances of the people of God because Assyria is moving south. This great threat is moving south. And so these historical situations, these cultural realities are oppressive to the people of God, and they fear for their lives. They fear for their future. There's a lot of that going around these days. So Judah is pictured in chapter 5 as the vineyard of God. It is carefully dug, cultivated, and prepared for a great harvest. God intended his people to be fruitful in righteousness and devotion to him, much as a well-cared-for vineyard responds with fruit for its vine dresser. But in response to the disobedience and worldliness of his people, his vineyard, God has something to say about his vineyard in chapter 5, verse 5. Look what he says here. Now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will command, command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. He tells them he's going to tear down the vineyard and let it become a wasteland for grapes, an overgrown briar patch, a thicket too thick to produce fruit. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. He tells them that they are going to experience the judgment of God. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. In other words, they're mocking God. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink. Boy, that's wonderful bartending skills. who acquit the guilty for a bribe, who deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, as dry, ground, dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. In other words, darkness covers the land. And there appears to be no stopping it. Hope appears to be lost. And these are desperate times. Hmm. How many times have the people of God encountered such over the last 3,000 years? More times than we could know. More times than we could count. Maybe today you're here and you're experiencing in your own heart some level of darkness some level of discouragement, some level of despair even. 
Maybe you have loved ones or friends, coworkers, classmates, who likewise are experiencing some level of darkness and they don't know what to do and how to remedy it and how to turn to God. But that is precisely the prescription that God through Isaiah is going to give to the people of Judah. Turn to God. Run to God. Find your hope in God and recognize that God is a God who promises relief. God is a God who has not left us alone. In spite of the desperation of our times, in spite of the sorrows of our day, of our own personal lives, he has not left us alone. So in the midst of that, he turns in chapter 6 to this great vision. We've talked about this already. I won't belabor it anymore, except to, he sees this vision of the glory of God. What, what is the answer when we are discouraged? It is to lift up, to look up. Some have asked me, why are we having life action? You know, it's the pandemic and all of that and so forth. And I, 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 here's my simple answer, because I am tired of people not looking to God. I really am. I'm tired of us believing that it is normal for the people of God to not look to God. We need, we need help to remember that our God is great and he is greater than any of us can calculate. How great is he? In the midst of all your troubles, he can do mighty things. How mighty, you say? Well, chapter 7, a virgin's going to have a baby. I don't know about you, but that's pretty mighty. That's pretty strong. In chapter 8, we're going to read in a moment, Assyria is going to come. And they have every military advantage. But God is going to stop them right at the very brink of your destruction. He's going to let it come this far and no farther. And why is he going to do that? Because he's God. And because he determines to be merciful. It is true that God is committed to his faithfulness. He's committed to his faithfulness so much so that God will bring judgment when he promises judgment. And he's bringing judgment. Chapter 5, he's bringing profound judgment. He's going to rip the vineyard up. He's going to tear down its walls and let it be overgrown with briars. God is a God who promises judgment and he's not fooling around. But he's also a God who promises mercy. And he keeps his word to his promises. And his promises are old. Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman will do battle against the serpent. That promise is being fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 7. When the woman, the, the seed of the woman, the virgin woman will be born, and this one will be Emmanuel, God with us. What do we need in the midst of the 
briar patch of life? What do we need in the midst of the sorrows of life? We need God. That's what we need. And I'm tired of us not looking to God. Amen. I'll take that. So in chapter 8, he continues this warning. He's already told him in chapter 6, this great vision of the throne room of God. Chapter 7, Emmanuel, God with us. You're going to see this virgin give birth to a child. But, but, but in the midst of that, Assyria keeps coming. In the midst of this promise of promise, God, God says Assyria is going to keep coming. And I want you to, I want you to see what he, what he says beginning in chapter 8, verse 5. Let's read together there. Regarding the judgment that he's going to bring upon Judah, he's purging, he's clarifying, he's refining his people. This is what he says, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people, meaning Judah, has refused the waters of Shiloah. That's an interesting term. references the water source for Jerusalem. To help you understand this picture, Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. It's, It's virtually impregnable. You go to Jerusalem today and you realize without, you know, superior air power and so forth, modern military, it's certainly, certainly no match for. But in those days, just, just infantry coming against this, this city is built on this, this, precipice of a mountain and uh, with, with high walls and, and uh, army within, it, it's impregnable. You, just, you can't defeat Jerusalem. God picked that city for a reason, and he has elevated that city for a reason, and it is a glorious tribute to the wisdom and power of God. But there is a weakness in Jerusalem, and that is that its water source is above ground. Now, its water source, like is the case of most cities, comes from somewhere else. The water source is a stream here called Shiloh, a stream. And God says, I will resource the city, its water, by the stream of Shiloh. But notice what he says. You, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, that's Syria and Israel. They have been defeated by Assyria. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Because you refuse the stream, you're going to get the river. Now, what does a river do to a city? Well, when it overswells its banks, it destroys it. Watch the imagery here. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria. Who is the river? What is the river? The river is not the, the gently flowing groundwater from Shiloh. The river is mighty Assyria. The folks that just captured Aram and Israel. You think you're spared because you've made an alliance with them. But I tell you what's going to happen. They're liars. You make a deal with the devil, and the devil is a liar. Go figure. Who's the fool in that arrangement? So they made a deal with the devil, 
And Assyria decides, you know, it felt good to overrun, to overrun Aram. It felt good to overrun Israel. Let's go for Judah. And they go against Judah, and they come against Jerusalem. And here's what he says. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech. It means even when you're standing on your tiptoes. So the people of Judah, the king of Judah, will be so oppressed, so, so threatened, it will be so dark, it will be so heavy that you are struggling to survive by standing on your tiptoes. You're about to drown. All of us have seen enough action movies. We've seen these folks caught in these cages or whatever, and they're just, they got their nose barely above water. That's the image here. You make an alliance with the devil. You reject the gently flowing stream of Shiloh. You're going to get the river. And you're going to get the river overflowing its banks. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. <laughs> That's interesting. He, he sort of lost track of who was talking there. In verse 8, he's bringing judgment. Now in verse 9, the, the, the person who is speaking is God now speaking to Assyria. So we're going to deal with that momentarily, and I'll show you that, how it helps us to understand. I want you to note three things here this morning very quickly in this passage, and we'll read on into chapter 9 momentarily. To refuse God, first of all, or to turn away from God brings judgment. We see that. We've seen that already in chapter 5. Now we see it again in chapter 8. If you refuse God or you turn away from God, it's going to bring judgment. Remember the great counsel that Isaiah brought to Ahaz, the king of Judah, in the beginning of this book was, don't make an alliance with Assyria. Those guys are evil. Those guys are not God. They're not your help. I don't care how strong you think they are. Your, your threat is not Israel to the north. Your threat is not Syria to the north. That's not your threat. And your friend is not Assyria. Your, your threat is that you are willing to do business with the devil. Your business is with God, not with the world. Do not make alliances with the world because the world is a liar. The world will let you down. The world is judged according to the fact that it's, it's God's, its values, it's, its circumstances are not yours. We are the people of God. Let's act like the people of God. Let's talk to God. Let's ask God. Let's look to God. Let's hope in God. Let's rest in God. That's who we are. We're the people of God. But if you refuse that, God will bring judgment. And he does so. And so here's a warning here in chapter 8. God is going to bring not the gently flowing stream. He's going to bring the river. And the river is going to come and it's going to leave its banks and it's going to come against the city. And as wonderful as Zion is, as wonderful as Jerusalem is, as big and bad as Jerusalem is, as seemingly impregnable as Jerusalem is, as seemingly impregnable as you think you are or your situation your marriage, your business, your family, 
even this church, this community, this nation, as seemingly impregnable as you think all this is, I want to remind you, friend, you are no match for the God who's sick and tired of our returning, of our refusing to return. God will not continue to wait and wait and wait and wait. At some point, our making foreign alliances, our doing business with the devil, our rejecting God, at some point, God is tired of that, and it brings judgment. It brings the sorrow and pain of those who have abandoned God. Let me warn you today that one who turns away from God finds no help from Assyria. You think Assyria is a kitten. Turns out Assyria is a wild animal. God's judgment is never without hope, though. Never without hope. For those who look to God, to those who return to God, and those who refuse to disobey God any longer. So he gives this word of hope in verse 9. And I want you to see, secondly, that the counsel of the enemies of God is no match for God. No matter how many they number, no matter how big and bad they appear to you, they're no match for God. So he begins to mock them in verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. All of you who would turn away from God, who have turned away from God, all you would do business to harm the people of God, give an ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together. I mean, conspire with your buddies. Go ahead, you unbelievers. You want to do business against God. You want to defeat God. You want to defeat the will of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God. It won't work. It will not stand, for God is with us. This is the theme of the book of Isaiah again and again and again. It's the theme of the entire Bible, is it not? That though Satan comes against God and his plan, go back to the garden. Satan comes against God's plan, and they succumb seemingly to their destruction, and yet God in his mercy rescues, and he pushes them out of the garden, and then sends them on their way and says, now go and, 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 and fill the earth and subdue it, and I will be with you. And they turn away from God, and the whole Tower of Babel experience is an example of that. Then, then of course, the great flood of Noah's day, uh, an example of that. They, they constantly, God is working with them but in the midst of every one of these stories, the record of God is he preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant. The time of Noah, he preserves eight. Noah and his wife, their three sons and their wives. He preserves a remnant. Why? Because God is not finished. Because Satan will not win. So what you have then is a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God will make his people as numerous as the Stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. God will do all of this. Why is God going to do this? Because he promised. God is faithful to his promise. He loves his people. He loves the glory of his people and the glory of his own name through his people. He will protect his people in the midst of even rampant disobedience. Listen, I don't know what God is doing in your life specifically, but I know what God is doing generally. And that is God is constantly calling you to repentance. 
He's calling you to be obedient. He's calling you away from the way of the world. The world is like a siren song, hollering, singing, wooing at you. Come over here, come over here, but only offering destruction. God offers life, and if we don't run to God, we'll find ourselves in the midst of powerful darkness. It will feel discouragement like we've never felt. We will run to the world and be disappointed because the river will come. Eventually, the world will turn and bite us. We cannot do this. We must not do this. We must not make alliances with the world system. Instead, we must run to God. God mocks the counsel of the enemies of God in verses 9 and 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Take counsel together, but it's a waste of time. Take counsel together, it's just talk. It's not worth the paper it's written on. You won't stand against God. Speak a word, run your mouth, talk big and bad, but it will not stand because God is with us. Emmanuel. Hmm. Turns out, God's commitment to his plan is greater than my commitment to his plan. Thanks be to God. Don't do business with the devil. Instead, we're to live under the word of the Lord. It was suggested by one commentator I read this week that perhaps Psalm 46 was written during this time period. No one knows for sure. Psalm 46 is attributed to the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were basically the caretakers of the Temple Mount area. So these are the guys who are uh, paying attention to all the goings and comings and the what's and wherefores of the temple area. They're around the temple. They're devout. They're apparently a bunch of guys who did a lot of chanting, singing, and, and this is a song attributed to the sons of Korah, Psalm 46, and some have suggested that maybe it dates to the 8th century B.C., to the time of Isaiah, even. Hear, hear these words in light of that. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Hmm. Whose streams make glad. It's not a river overflowing its banks. It's a stream that daily supplies the needs of God's people. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be Moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and they shut up. Well, that's not what it says, but that's the paraphrase. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I don't know if 
Psalm 46 was written in the 8th century B.C. or not, but I do know that those truths are exactly the truths that Isaiah is saying in chapter 8. The counsel of the enemies of God is no match for God. Ultimately, it comes back to this. Isn't it true in our lives? How do we practice belief? How do we practice faith? What does a man of faith look like? What does he do? What does he not do? What characterizes his life? Well, the, the answer to that is quite long, frankly. The Bible is replete with application of what the man of God looks like. He's, he's kind and tender and gentle and long-suffering and patient and on and on we could go. His character is of, of a certain quality because he is a man of faith. He is a man who has a loyalty to God, an allegiance to God, an identity in God. What does the man of God do as a result of that? Well, he is faithful. He abstains from evil and he pursues justice. He pursues righteousness. He pursues that which honors God and elevates the dignity of people. He does not take malice against people. Therefore, he is not a murderer. He is not a liar. He is not a robber. Why is he not? Because God is not, and he is a man who believes in God. And because of that, he is a man who is faithful to his God and faithful to the people of God. He is a man who is generous. He is a man who is, who is careful to, to serve others. He is always compassionate toward others. This is the man of God. And the application just go on and on and on and on and on. But in this context, the man of God is the man who does not fear the world. Courage. Courage is possible apart from God. I mean, you know, step into your fears and be brave, right? You don't, have, you don't need God for that. So the world certainly can recognize fear, be courageous in the face of fear and be strong. You don't need God for that. But the courage of the man of God is not based upon the strength of man, the wisdom of man, the cunning of man, but rather is based upon the power of God. Again, go back to verse 10, chapter 8. Take counsel together, it will come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand. For God is with us. In other words, you ever been an eight-year-old arguing with another eight-year-old? And ultimately, the trump card is in the end, well, I'm going to get my big brother. He'll put an end to you. Ultimately, you can argue and argue, but it's a, you know, it's a, normally eight-year-olds against eight-year-olds is pretty much a fair fight. But you bring in your 12-year-old brother, and it's over. That's the trump card. You win. I don't have one of those. You win. Well, that's what the Scripture's doing. You can run your mouth. You can make counsel together. You can do all you want, make your plans, but God is with us. 
We've got the big brother, in this case, our heavenly father. That brings us to chapter 9. He tells us who this is. But God is with us. Who is this God? We'll read chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as you have broken on the day of Meridian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and his peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of angel armies will accomplish this. I am so tired of us walking around with our heads down as if we are not victorious. We are the people of God. We live in the midst of people who are not. Our witness is to them. Our our, our kindness is again and again to them. Our hope is in God that he would be merciful to them. But in the end, we do not take our cue from the world. We must not be afraid. We must be men and women of great faith, great confidence, great hope in God, great, great belief that God is greater than all of our sorrows and all of our circumstances and all of our fears and all of our anxieties. Let us lean into God. Instead of every other little thing, whatever they may be. And whatever it is today, it's going to be something else a year from now, something else two years from now. We just recognize that it's a common fight. We have to fight and fight and fight and fight. And what's the value of the church in all of that? Because in the midst of the fight, some of us get tired. Some of us get weak. Some of us get distracted. Some of us get interested in the world. And what are you supposed to do with those people? Well, like in every family, you're supposed to grab them by the arm and say, hey, you look a little tired, come over here. Hey, you look a little distracted, come over here. And we have to keep, we're like a little chicken with our little chicks. We just have to keep bringing people back, get them under the wings of God. That's what we do. That's what the church is all about. We don't ignore people. We don't forget people. We bring them back. That's why we need the church. That's why the church has got to be strong. That's why the church has got to be bold. That's why the church is the people that Isaiah is talking to. Well, not directly, but indirectly. He's talking to the people of God, and he's saying, you people need to be people who understand this. Emmanuel, what does that mean to you? How do you apply Emmanuel? God with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're going to face whatever we're going to face, but we're going to face it with God. We're not alone. We're not weak. We are the people of God. We are strong. Let us be strong together. And who is our God? Our God is the one who in the midst of our darkness, all of our darkness, 
He's that pinprick of light that we can see off in the horizon. We know he's coming. Our God is coming. And we noticed that even though we are here in the midst of our darkness, the pinprick of light gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light because that light has come and it's dawned, he says. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Listen, we are not alone. Let us not act like we're alone. We're not forgotten. Let us not act like we're forgotten. We are not overwhelmed. Let us not act like we're overwhelmed. Let us not feel like we're any of those things because we are not. Our God is for us. And who is our God? <laughs> well, he's our wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In other words, friend, he's the only God. And you think your friendship with Assyria is a rabbit's foot. You think your friendship with Assyria is going to serve you well. You think rejecting the stream of Shaloah is going to end well. Well, the God of gods is not only the God who brings light in the midst of darkness. He's the one who brings judgment upon those who reject him. My prayer today, my hope today, my encouragement, my exhortation, my invitation to you today is that you turn away from making alliances with the world in whatever fashion, whatever way, whatever contemplation you come up with. But instead, make sure that the anchor of your life that never moves, that always holds, is this God. Wonderful counselor. Everlasting father. Mighty God, Prince of Peace. The world can talk, and they will, but it will come to nothing. But God, this God, Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, He is with us. We're the people of God. Let us bind our hearts together and say, let us go. Let us go, let us go, let us go. Let us be faithful in our responsibilities at home and at work, in the community, and in this church. Let us be faithful. And let us not be found trying to make alliances with others. For the sake of God, for the sake of the witness of God, and for the sake of the joy of our own lives, the Prince of Peace will bring peace. Let's be satisfied in Him today. Let us be men and women of great faith, great courage, who trust God, who believe God, and will follow God. Let's pray. Father, there is one king, and you are him, and we thank you so. We pray for your mercies upon us. We pray for your grace upon us. We pray that you would help us and strengthen us to be men and women of great courage. Thank you, Father, as Isaiah chastises Judah. 
Lord, I pray, Father, that we would hear the chastisement where necessary and we would resolve to return to God where we have drifted, that we would follow God, cling to God, hope in God, and look to God. For the promise is old, and yet it is brand new. The promise of your protection, the promise of your love, the promise of your work, the promise of your continued strengthening of your people. Pray, God, that we might be a testimony to the world. We are the men and women of God. Help us to be faithful and not give in to the ways of the world, whatever they may be. Temptation is everywhere. Sin crouches at the door. Let us not give in. Let us be committed to the things and ways of God. And let us lead our families to do likewise. We love you so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.